Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. When we were just planting the trails, we had groups of men and women studying the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. How many of you have read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God? Um, I just can't commend the book higher. Well, the Bible. You should read the Bible, mostly. And Packer, if you have time. Um, I was thumbing through my well-worn copy of it this week, and as I did, I came across some notes that I had sketched in the margins of various comments that were said during our study of the book. A smile stretched across my face as I found this breadcrumb trail of insights with the names of men who had shared these insights in our study. Uh, Mike Lamb, here's what he said, and Ben Wagley, who was just playing drums, had a comment of something he said that I learned and grew from. I'd like to begin our time by sharing with you something that I think leads right to the central idea of our passage today. Two of the most shaping chapters I have read are both found in this book, Knowing God. Chapter 19 is entitled, Sons of God, which talks about the importance of the doctrine of adoption. He begins the chapter saying, asking this question, what is a Christian? And Packer admits, there's, the question can be answered many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. So let's just pause right there. A Christian is one who knows God as Father. We understand that all people are made in the image of God as image bearers of God, but not everyone can say that they are a child of God. That's reserved only for those who have been born not just once, but supernaturally born again by the Spirit. And to use the language of Hosea chapter 1, adopted as children of the living God. So there I came face to face with the importance of the doctrine of adoption. And then chapter 17 is called the heart of the gospel. And what that really pressed into me was the importance of Christ dying in my place as a substitute. Now that's known as the doctrine of propitiation. Okay, Um, So adoption is a familiar word to us. Propitiation may not be to some. And so let me offer this working definition. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath, His righteous wrath, through His designated offering. I'll read that again. This is a working definition. There may be some holes in it. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath through His designated offering. Okay, well, how is that the center of the gospel? Well, there is no better news than the reality that God's righteous wrath against our sin has been completely satisfied through Christ's blood that was shed on our behalf as He took the punishment we deserved. Maybe to use a different phrase, Jesus in my place. So He took what we deserved We receive what we did not deserve, the righteousness of Christ laid on us. Okay, so then Packer takes those two ideas, 
Adoption, propitiation. And he says, if, if he was going to summarize the whole New Testament through three words, it would be this. Adoption through propitiation. I think that's a very helpful little framework. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write that phrase. Adoption through propitiation. He said he didn't expect to ever find a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Okay, so all of that to lead to the book of Exodus. I want you to think about those three words, adoption through propitiation, as I read out loud Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. There God promises, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. I believe what we find in the book of Exodus is how God has adopted his people to be his people, and he would be our God through propitiation, redeeming them not only from captivity, but through the blood of the Lamb, cleansing them of sin. So in Exodus chapter 11, we're going to look all the way to chapter 12, verse 32 today. And here we arrive at one of the most definitive moments in the Old Testament, the Passover. The first, uh, the final plague that God sends on Pharaoh and the Egyptians shows the Lord decisively demonstrate his power through salvation and judgment. So we're going to witness the Israelites standing by faith and observing God's word, protected under the blood of the Lamb, while Pharaoh and the Egyptians refuse God's word and receive the most severe blow from the Lord's mighty hand. So what significance do we discover in the Passover plague? I think here we have a foretaste of the good news of God's salvation, or to say it a different way, the gospel of the spotless lamb. Now, we often talk about the gospel in four words. God, like big movements, God, man, Christ, and response. And so what I want to do is through the put on our gospel glasses and look at this text. And here's what I want to outline. First, the purpose and plan of God, we see in chapter 11. Second, the need of all mankind. And there we'll kind of circle our thoughts on chapter 11, verse 7. Third, the blood of the spotless lamb. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 27. And then finally, Two ways to respond, chapter 12, verses 28 through 32. So let me invite you to stand your feet, and we're going to read chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11. This is God's holy and inerrant word. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. 
in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's true. Would you please be seated? The first truth I want to call our attention to is the purpose and plan of God, which we find in chapter 11. Exodus 11 is a preview of what is to come in this final plague recorded in chapter 12. But as we push off, let's remember what we learned last week about these signs and wonders that God performed in Egypt and what the purpose of them was. Each of the ten plagues have a specific purpose for God to make himself known to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. We're a part of this. God's revelation, and we receive it. In chapter 9, verse 14, the Lord summarized what he was doing through these signs, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. If we fast forward to chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord gives us even more insight into the purpose of this final plague as he executes judgment on the nation of Egypt. But not only Egypt, but also on their gods. You see, each sign from the Lord shows that he alone is God, and there is none other, not the worship of the Nile River or the sun god Ra or even Pharaoh himself. But like David writes in Psalm 96.5, the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. So his purpose in this final plague is that people would know that he alone is the Lord. And specifically with his people, the purpose there is that as he delivered them, that they would see the great lengths that God goes to in order to set his people free to worship and serve him only. This final plague is unique from the first nine. It has the same purpose in view, but the plan for this Passover plague is different than the rest. From the beginning we read, I just thought these words were so haunting. One plague more. One plague more. And Pharaoh will let the Israelites go free. In chapter 11, the thick fog that we've been walking through, wondering how is God going to deliver his people, 
that thick fog lifts and we can see clearly exactly what the Lord will do and what he has planned. Moses tells the people and Pharaoh alike what this last plague will entail. At midnight, God will go out in the midst of Egypt. He will go walking. And the firstborn male of every household will be put to death. And from the heights of the king's palace to the lowest servant shack, the firstborn will be killed. And at midnight, there will be a cry of grief sound through the air in a way that the world has never, ever heard. We just notice that Moses isn't happy about this. Moses has compassion for these people. Notice how angry he is at Pharaoh's response. As a result of this final plague, the Egyptians are going to plead with the Israelites, who are their slaves, to leave. Leave as fast as possible. Now, this is not a new plan or a change of plans. God never changes his plans. But before any of the plagues had fallen, the Lord told Moses, back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22... To tell Pharaoh these words, let my son go. That's how God talks about the Israelites, his firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Okay, so we've got to now wrap our often dull uh, finite minds around the majesty and glory of God's eternal plans and purposes in the next 20 minutes. Let's not forget what is happening in the background. What's happening to God's people. Go back to when we first cracked open the book of Exodus a few months ago. Pharaoh had viciously mandated, do you remember those godly labor and delivery nurses, Shifra and Pua? Don't forget their names. Those godly women that stood up to Pharaoh. And then when his plan didn't succeed and the Israelites weren't dying off like he'd planned, he told them to kill those baby boys. And they said, well, they said, okay, we'll do it. And then they didn't do it. And then he gets the whole country in on this. All of the Egyptians then join his um, vicious, hissing plan to join his genocide of Hebrew sons. What's happening here is that justice is being demanded from a holy God. A son for a son. God will avenge his people. And he will defend his name. He is the Lord. The sons of God had been slaughtered by the Egyptians. And the children of God cried out to him from their suffering. Do you remember what happened in chapter 2? God heard their cry. God remembered the promise that he had made to his people. God saw them in their suffering. And God knew them as they were, where they were. And now he will answer their cry for help in this final plague. This is God's answer to the prayer of his people under the purposes of his divine will. This is the purpose and plan of God in the Passover, to make himself known and to rescue his people. Okay, so that's the 
purposes and plan of God. The next truth I want us to note is the need of all mankind. In chapter 11, verse 7, we read that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And God had made a distinction between His people and theirs. Last week, we noticed in the middle of the fourth plague an interesting development that previews what will eventually uh, coincide at the Red Sea. While the Lord's judgment falls on His enemies, His people are saved by His provision of grace. God told Moses in chapter 8, verse 23, I will put division between my people and your people. Another way to translate that is, I will set, do you remember? Redemption. I will set redemption between my people and your people. Well, we see evidence of this redemption in plagues 5 through 10. As the judgment of God rains down on Egypt while his people are sheltered from each act. So as the livestock of all the Egyptians grow sick and die, the cows of the Israelites are thriving. As driving hail pounds down upon the crops and bends the trees in two. Moses says that in chapter 9, verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. And then... Do you remember in the ninth plague, as a thick blanket of darkness covers all of Egypt, what do you see coming from Goshen? Chapter 10, verse 23. The people of Israel had light where they lived. And so there's already a distinction made between the people of God and not the people of God. But now, more is being asked of God's people. Now, they must actively distinguish themselves from the Egyptians, specifically by marking their homes with blood sprinkled from the door frames. Let's not miss this. Remarkably, the threat of death here, it's totally different than the, than the previous plagues. The threat of death hangs over the Israelites as much as it does the Egyptians. You see that? The threat of death looms large. And while there is a distinction made, neither people are capable of enduring the presence of God without some sort of sacrifice, without some sort of propitiation for their sins. So at midnight, the angel of death is going to walk through Egypt and Goshen as well, where the Israelites are having refuge. And as the Lord goes out into the midst of Egypt, the holiness of God will kill the firstborn son of any and every household that does not have some solution for their sin. You see, that's what's happening. This is about more than just, this is not about ethnicity or culture. This is about God dealing with the problem of sin. And both Egyptian and Israelite had this problem with sin from the moment they were born. It's in their blood to rebel against him, to do things their own way, to do what was right in their own eyes. So there must be some kind of solution for the need of all mankind. And what we see in the Passover plague is that God has provided a way. The remedy for this final plague comes in the third movement 
the blood of the spotless lamb. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 28. Now, in the timeline of this plague, the plot couldn't be more tense right now. What's going to happen as this angel of death sweeps through the land? But Moses just calls a timeout in the midst of this, and he leaves us in suspense. He's in no hurry to tell us God's great story of redemption. And chapter 12 contains a lot of information about two ritual feasts, both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, it's been our practice to preach through books of the Bible. And so, in God's kind providence, next week, as we lead up to Thanksgiving, the sermon is called A Thanksgiving Meal, where we're going to look at both of these two feasts uh, that are, are given to God's people for them to be thankful and to remember what God has done. So today, we're not going to deal with that, because we'll, we'll look at it next week, because today, what I want you really at the front of our thoughts is the importance and the significance of the blood of the Lamb. So Moses is a master storyteller, and here he pauses for a purpose. He's telling us of the Passover feast that was to come, but he's also teaching us what happened in real time in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord had commanded the children of Israel to do specific acts during this tenth and final plague in order to escape death. So we learn how each family is commanded to take a spotless lamb that's each one year old. And at twilight, each household was to kill that lamb. What I'd like to do is read chapter 12, verses 7 through 13, because nobody tells us better than Moses. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn." In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So we'll look at that next week. Now verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I want to highlight first, as verse 13 says, that this blood shall be a sign for you, that's for the people of a God. Now, this blood on the doorpost is a visible sign of their faith, of the faith of his Israelites. It's a sign that they have been, they have heard the word of God, they've responded to the word of God with obedience, they've done as God said. And this is a sign also for us to look back on and see their faith and see their obedience. Yet, it is also a sign for God. When God sees the blood, he will pass over the house. 
He will pass over the people in it. He will pass over the sins represented there. How can a holy God pass over the sins of the people? Well, because there has been blood shed that has protected those people from God's judgment. But you see, it wasn't the blood of the firstborn son. It was the blood of this lamb shed in the place of the son. The blood of the lamb is at the center of the Passover story. The blood of the lamb is the Passover story. The lamb signified to the Israelites that they had a substitute. A lamb died in their place. You see, their sin was a capital offense. God was coming in judgment, armed with a deadly plague. But when they looked up and saw the blood on the door, they knew as they're huddled in their homes that night that God's word was true, that his promises will not fail. And God had promised to pass over their sins. Guys, we cannot find a more clear window from the Old Testament to look through if we want to think about the substitutionary work of Christ as his blood was shed on our behalf. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sin, they are kicked out of the garden. They are made aware of their nakedness. And the Lord, out of his kindness and mercy to them, clothes them with the skin of what? An animal. Who killed the animal? God did. Fast forward now to Genesis 22, when Abraham, by faith, walks up that fearful mountain to sacrifice Isaac, his son, as God had commanded him. And as the, as the knife is held in Abram's hand, the angel of the Lord restrains his hand and the bleeding of a lamb is heard. And Abram goes and gets that and sacrifices the lamb instead of his own son. Fast forward then to the day of atonement for the people of God every year where the sins of the people were laid upon the head of a scapegoat, a pure and spotless lamb that would then transfer all the sins of the people symbolically to this lamb. And now fast forward to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5-7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, it was Christ who the whole sins of the world was laid upon. Yours and mine. Our sins laid upon the pure and spotless lamb. And remember, as his cousin John is standing on the banks of the Jordan River, Jesus walks up, and what does John say? Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who has taken away our sin. All of us who are in Christ, your sins completely taken away by Jesus. That's good news. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that's a comma, not a period. It goes on to say this. Romans 3.23. But, and, or sorry, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word. His wrath satisfied because of what Christ has done. And what do we do with that? 
It's to be received by faith. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the 10th plague, the good news of the gospel, that the wrath of God has been completely satisfied because of the work of Christ and through his blood spilled on our behalf. Is that good news to you? That's worthy of a feast. I came across this hymn this, this week written in Latin. I don't speak Latin, so I read the English translation. But Christians have sung these words for 1,500 years. Now Christ, our Passover is slain, the Lamb of God without a stain. His flesh, the true unleavened bread, is freely offered in our stead. So there's two ways to respond to the good news of the spotless lamb. We see these in verses 29 and 30. Before we read those, I want to just remind you, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to help us understand how these things happened to God's people of old as an example, but they were written for our instruction. So I believe the lessons that we learn from the 10th plague include lessons on who God is. The one who is working his unfolding plans according to his sovereign purposes. It also teaches us about mankind. That we've all sinned as as a result of the fall against a holy God. And as a result of our sin, we stand under God's righteous and just judgment. Okay, so yet against the darkness of that background... The brilliant light of the gospel shines. Salvation has come through a spotless lamb. And so ultimately, I think this leads, uh, this, this division of people, I think demands two kinds of responses. I think this text offers for the Christian an unshakable assurance in the completed work of Christ. Unshakable assurance. And then... Uh, To any who have not placed their faith in Christ, this text is an unavoidable warning, an unshakable assurance, and an unavoidable warning. So let's read the rest of the story of the Passover, verses 29 through 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Here we come face to face, unavoidable warning, And it's because there's an unavoidable judgment. God had warned and promised this coming punishment. And God always keeps his word. The firstborn of all these Egyptian households were put to death. Ultimately because there was no covering for their sin. There must be a payment for the sin. It would either be theirs or the blood of the lamb. And ultimately they were not counted with the people of God. They lived and died rejecting and refusing the Lord, and lived and died 
as his enemies. There is the necessity of a judgment and the unavoidable warning. So I just call out to any of you who have not trusted in Jesus. Your heart has been hard toward him. There is a There's a judgment coming. It is as real as your next breath. And there's one way through it. It's by faith in the completed work of Christ. So today, if you hear God's word call to you, don't harden your heart. Don't resist him one more day. You may not have tomorrow. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jamie's been singing all week, are you washed in the blood? Are you? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? But judgment's not all we come to. There's a silent witness in this passage. There's no mention of one single death in the homes of God's people. The key to this understanding of faith and assurance, here we're arriving at this unshakable assurance. I don't know if the Israelites had it, but we have it in Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. But I just want you to see how the Israelites heard the word of God, they believed it, and they acted in response to it by faith. 1227, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This is what we saw them do at the end of chapter 4, remember? They worshipped, and then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's Moses telling us that everything he just talked about in this Passover piece, the people of God did those things. And the witness of Scripture is complete silence with the judgment of God visiting any of his people's homes. Another way to say that is they believed. They believed. They had faith in God's revelation. There are a few men who have impacted my life more than a, um, a, a professor in Chicago named D.A. Carson. Um, one of the most brilliant men that roams the earth. A few years ago, he was at a pastor's conference, and he, he really was trying to press in the, the assurance of salvation to those who were, who were gathered. Um, so he imagined this scene on the night of Passover between two Jewish men who had both sacrificed the lamb, they were told to, in exactly the way they did, had the blood marked on their doorposts, I thought about just showing you the video because Don's so winsome and telling it. But I'll, just, I'll try to give you an overview of what he said. So imagine two Jewish fathers standing outside their homes the night of Passover. And one says to another, are you nervous about what's happening tonight? And the other says, nope, not at all. I mean, haven't you slaughtered the lamb and taken the hyssop and Put it all over the 
markings of your door? Haven't you eaten all of the lamb you were supposed to and the bitter herbs? Haven't you done the things that God had commanded you to? Isn't your belt tight and fastened, ready to get out of here? Your bags are packed. You're ready to go. The Lord's doing this tonight. And the first man says, well, I've, yeah, I've done all those things, but it's still, it's really scary. Remember there were frogs and gnats and flies and blood and hail and dead cows everywhere. Don't, we've been through a lot in the last little bit. And this angel of death is coming through. His knees are knocking with fear. The first man says, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. And that night, the angel of death swept through the land. And Don asks, which of these two men lost their sons that night? Neither. They both believed in the word of God and trusted in the blood to save them. He concludes saying, death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the faith exercised, but on the blood of the Lamb. It's not the intensity of our faith that saves, but the object of our faith that saves. And so let me just pastorally press this into us. If you are a Christian, if you have repented of your sins, your heart has been broken over the ways you have broken God's law and commands and you have pled with him for repentance and faith, and you have been born again, there is nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. You have complete assurance to stand before God. Not because of the strength of your faith, but because of the object of your faith. So what is left for us to do? Believe in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, but you don't know the things I've done. Believe in the blood of the Lamb. What about tomorrow? What happens when I wear thin God's grace? Oh, it doesn't. Believe in the blood of the Lamb. That's what we're called to do. That is the good news of the spotless lamb. The Christ has done it all. So with joy and faith, we receive what he has done. So don't miss the point of the 10th sign. God has delivered his people from slavery so that they might worship and serve him. This is the news we've been waiting for. The war is finally over. God has saved his people by his mighty hand. We won't get to the actual exodus of God's people till next week, but I thought it'd be fitting to end this day with Pharaoh the Great pleading with Moses and his people. Listen to what Pharaoh says. Chapter 12, verse 31, 32. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. He didn't even wait till morning. It's the noise of the cry turns to silence. There he comes knocking. Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me 
also. This final and decisive plague by the saving mighty hand of God demonstrates his power in salvation through judgment. We've witnessed the Israelites stand by faith, observing God's word under the blood of the Lamb, while Pharaoh and Egypt refuse God's word and receive the most severe blow. What does the Passover mean to you? Is it a demonstration of God's saving power in your life? Or is it a sword that the Lord is trying to cut you down from your pride and through your hard-heartedness to show you that he alone can save? What does the Passover mean to you? I believe here in this account we find two of the most glorious doctrines taught in Scripture, adoption and propitiation. Streaming together to bring life and salvation to the people of God. That is the good news of the spotless lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself and making yourself known. Thank you for the way that you have given us so great a salvation. Showing us such mercy, such forgiveness. Let us be a remembering people. I ask this in Jesus' name.